You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. This is actually part of the inspired Hebrew text. So the original writer wanted us to know something different about this series of of psalms. They were psalms of ascent. What does that mean? Well, the scholars differ in terms of what they think that means, but a couple of things I think we can agree upon in that. Well, first of all, ascending meaning going up. There's something about these psalms in connection with going up. Well, I think it has to do with worship. And it has to do with worship that happened in Jerusalem. Topographically, Jerusalem was a city on a hill. And so, in a geographical sense, when you went up to Jerusalem to worship, you were going uphill. And up to the Temple Mount, which is uh, kind of the highest point on that hill as well, it's a psalm of ascent, meaning you're going up ascents, you're going up in that way. Metaphorically, it means a psalm of ascent, in that any time we go to worship God, we are ascending up to Him. That's a, a great posture and, and a great way, picture, a way of looking at worshiping God is, to, to, is going up to Him. Three times a year, the Israelites were commanded to go up to Jerusalem and worship God. Jesus did that as well in, the, in, the, in three major feasts of Judaism. And so this was a regular part of their worship. And so what do the psalms of ascent mean? Well, I didn't plan this. You know, I saw when when we started doing this psalm series this summer, uh, first of all, the 80s song is pretty awesome. That's like my era. Uh, But the graphic that we're using is, you know, this cassette tape thing. For those of you too young to remember, this is a cassette tape. We used to use this. We used to put this in our car. Cars used to have cassette tape players. We would listen to music that way. We could also record music on these things. Anybody remember that? Maybe two or three of us? Okay, awesome. And so if you think of the Psalms of Ascent, the Psalms of Ascent are kind of like, and and I'll translate this for different generations, it's kind of like a mixtape for worship as you're heading to Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but this morning, and I do this most Sunday mornings, as I'm getting ready, um, um, I put on worship music to sort of prepare me for my time of worship. Sometimes, some of you may do this to drown out the kids while you're trying to get ready for church and try to drown out the stress. I'm seeing some nodding heads. Um, but that, that mixtape idea is really what they're after here. So that, that's for people in my generation. Some of you say, what's a mixtape? I don't understand quite what that is. It's something you would put, maybe you would burn a CD of music. Remember when we used to do that, some of us? Two or three or four of us? Okay. Or um, I'll go back in time a little bit. It would be something you would play on a Walkman with the, the fuzzy headphones as you're walking towards worship. Or it's a playlist you'd put on your iPod. Okay, I'm getting warmer. Or it's your playlist on Spotify. Does that, does that cover everybody pretty much? All right, so you got an idea what this is now? So a Psalm of Ascent is... Whatever music platform you use in your generation, 
It was what they used as they, as they went up to worship God. Okay, and so specifically Psalm 121 is one of those psalms uh, that sort of set the mood or set the tone, if you will, for the people who are worshiping in Jerusalem. Okay, that's Psalm 121. Now, before we get into the text, I got a, I got a story to tell. There I was, the summer of 1985. I just graduated from high school. Now you know how old I am. You do the math. Graduated from high school. Uh, the month after I graduated from high school, I raised my hand and uh, took an oath uh, to, to join the Illinois Air National Guard. And uh, so, then, uh, so then I had to, I, I, they kind of did this backwards. I think I did the oath first and then I had to take my physical. That seems wrong. But anyway, um, I had to go to my unit to go uh, take my physical. And my dad was with me and we were driving my 1978 Pontiac Sunbird. It's an awesome, awesome car. Those four barrels, it screamed. And, you know, it went to zero to 60 in about 30 minutes. It was an awesome car. <laughs> On the way up to my unit, um, I had an engine fire. The engine caught on fire. And my dad was with me. This is 1985, remember? So you saw some videos from 1985, and you saw the, the level of technology we had. So there was no GPS. We didn't have a cell phone. We didn't have, like, even in the brick kind of cell phone. We didn't have a cell phone, and so we pulled over the side of the road. This guy in a camper came along, providential. This guy in a camper came along and had a fire extinguisher and uh, put out the fire in my engine uh, bay. And so then my dad stayed with the car to get the tow truck and all that kind of stuff. And the guy in the camper drove me on up to my unit to, to get uh, my physical, which turned out fine. Um, fast forward, the next month, I had to go, uh, I was, was going to be a student at the University of Illinois that next fall, so I had to go to student orientation. And so I'm driving kind of on the same roads, but a little bit further, same 1978 Pontiac Sunbird, which by the way didn't have a cassette deck in it, but anyway, that's just beside the point. But, so we were, I was driving, and um, one of the radiator hoses in the car blew, and uh, radiator fluid all over the windshield. That was fun. Uh, so I had, again, I had to pull over to the side, had to get a tow truck, and I had to call my dad and say, Dad, what do I do? And by, meaning, by calling my dad, I mean, I had to find a payphone. I'll take a little bit of time for this for the younger folks. <laughs> I had to take a coin, I think it was probably a quarter or something at the time, insert it in the phone. I know this is hard to believe. And then I could dial and I could talk to my dad. So... My dad helped me out there. I, I kind of did a, I was, able to, I was able to go ahead and do, uh, get my car fixed and then uh, on. I was late, but I got to orientation. At the end, and the story's not over yet. Uh, the end of the day, as I was going to drive back home, the alternator in my car died. Okay? I love that 78 Pontiac Sunbird. It was an awesome car. So once again, so I couldn't leave town. And it was the end of the day, and there was no place to go to fix it and that kind of thing. So what did I do? Call my dad. So again, you know, you know find a payphone, the whole, the whole bit again. So I called my dad, and he took care of it. So he knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy. And so I stayed with, that night with somebody that I didn't know, and I got the car fixed the next morning, and, and I went on my way back home. So I could write a book about uh, just my, my freshman year of college and all the things leading up to it. Um, so that was, anybody else have, like, you don't have to tell them, because we don't have that much time, 
But um, anybody else have like car problem fun stories to tell? If you were if you were standing up here, like, oh, let me tell you my story. You could probably beat my story. So we all have those kinds of stories. But I tell you, in 1985, when you're working off of paper maps to get from place to place, um, and pay phones to call somebody for help. It's a little bit different. It's a little bit fearful. And we take that for granted now. I mean, I don't go to the store today without having my phone with me for fear that something might happen in my car between my house and Smith's, which is a five-minute drive. That's 21st century. Mine was 20th century. But let's go back several centuries and think about the trip from wherever to Jerusalem and what that might be like. That's what the psalmist is addressing in this particular psalm. That idea, uh, when we travel long distances, uh, what, what are we concerned about? What keeps us safe? In the 21st century, we've got all kinds of things that can keep us safe, but in the, day, in the age of the psalmist who was writing this, those things weren't available. Traveling long distances was not, only, was not only treacherous, but it was dangerous. Robbery and assault was a common occurrence. Motel 6 did not leave the light on for you back in those days. And so if you had to stop along the way, uh, if it was a more than a one-day trip, uh, you, were sleeping out, you were sleeping out in front of God and everybody, and you were taking your chances. It wasn't exactly a safe place to be. The writer of Ecclesiastes understood this. This is why the writer of Ecclesiastes says this in chapter 4. I don't know if we've got it up on the screen or not. Yeah, there we go. Um, he understood this, this nature of, of how it was important to travel with someone. That's why I was traveling with my dad the first time. That's why it's so important you travel with someone in the ancient world because he says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who was alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So you need that person for protection and for warmth, that person alongside you, uh, because it was treacherous to travel in those days. It's in that light that the psalmist in 121 ponders in the very first verse. He says, I lift up my eyes to the hill. From where does my help come from? He's on the journey. He's on the journey to worship God in Jerusalem. And he says, where does my help come from? Does it come from the hills? And so when he talks about the hills, it's likely that he's not looking at them and admiring their beauty. Sometimes when we read, these, read this psalm, uh, oftentimes if we're, like, like, if we're hiking up in uh, Mount Charleston or Red Rock, we might be inspired. If we remember this psalm, we might be inspired as we're looking out. Where does my help come from? And we, we, we think of this psalm. I don't think, it was a, I don't think this is an inspirational question. I think it's an actual question where he says, I'm looking up at the hills, and I think there's some fear. Because what comes from, what comes from over the hills? Well, first of all, there's unknown things. Uh, storms oftentimes come up when you don't see them because they're beyond the hills, and they come up on us unexpectedly. And that can be frightening. But the other thing is, it's a great vantage point for those who are going to take advantage of us. 
It's a great vantage point for people who are going to steal things from us, who are going to uh, ambush us. And I think in, in a certain sense, the psalmist is looking at, looking at those hills from that perspective. And so it's not a look of hope and inspiration. It's a look of fear. Not only that, but the other thing that happened oftentimes in the hills is pagan worship. That's where the pagans went up and sacrificed to their false gods. And so various religions set up shrines and makeshift temples where people would engage in all sorts of odd and immoral acts and worship to earn the help of a false god. So the psalmist is saying, I look up to the hills, potential dangers, but also this pagan worship that happens there. And he says, can I get help from the pagan philosophies and worship practices that are around me? Or should I stay on this path to Jerusalem? So in one sense, it's a choice he's trying to make between following after the the pagan practices that he knows exist up there in those hills. And the true worship happens with a true and righteous God in Jerusalem. Well, very quickly in verse 2, he comes to a, a, the right conclusion. Okay, in Verse 2, he says, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He doesn't need to fear what may be in the hills because the God who created the planet and who continues to sustain it will keep the traveling pilgrim in his watchful care. Throughout the remainder of the psalm, the writer affirms that sovereignty of God over his life, which should equally be a comfort to us. And so, through the remainder of the psalm, we're going to look at, we're going to look at how he sees the sovereignty of God in providing sovereign care over his life. First, God is sovereign, and we're going to go through these rather quickly, but then I'm going to draw some conclusions. First, he says, um, my so- God is sovereign over physical mishaps. Look at verse 3. He says, he will not let your foot be moved. He will not let your foot be moved. Now, roads in the ancient world were nothing like the pristine concrete masterpieces we have here surrounding Las Vegas. Whether they're under construction or not, the roads we have around this great city are wonderful in comparison to the roads they had in the ancient world. Uh, Not just in terms of their quality, but remember a a lot of it was, a lot of travel from place to place was foot travel. And so sometimes there'd be unexpected, uh, uh, Holes that you might fall into, and especially if, if, if you were traveling closer to night or after, after the sun went down, you couldn't see things as well. It's not exactly like they had signs. And again, they didn't have GPS. Motel 6 didn't leave light on for them. And so it was difficult to travel in those days. And so there were many physical dangers that came with traveling along the way. And, and, the, and the psalmist affirms that God will not let, not let your foot be moved but that, there be, that, that God is sovereign over that and sovereign over that situation. Secondly, uh, God is sovereign over the dangers of the natural world. He is our shelter. In verses 5 and 6, it says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The, the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. And we understand the whole idea of a shade from the sun We live in a city that has 294 sunny days a year. We understand, I mean, today is going to be one of those days. It'd be really nice to have some shade. And so they understood that as well, that that, uh, they didn't have sunscreen back then. uh, And and so it would have been nice to have. So so that that screen, and and there's a a sense in which this is to be taken metaphorically as well, that God is our, our shade, our protector, our comforter, the one who watches over us and provides that sovereign care over us, but he uses it in the context of uh, natural world 
challenges. But he also says this very interesting thing. He says, uh, the Lord is your keeper, the, sun, uh, the Lord is your shade and your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The last time I checked, I didn't get a, I never, I've never had a moon burn. The moon has never been something that I've been terribly afraid of. But uh, for many reasons in the ancient world, there was a certain level of, of fear of, of, the, of the moon. Uh, in fact, the word lunacy we have, uh, that sort of means that you're a few fries short of a happy meal, um, that phrase, lunacy, comes from lunar, moon, get it? Okay? But we also know there's certain things, let me, let me throw down some physiology and some, some psychology on you. So, you ever hear of the, of, uh, of the term uh, seasonal affective disorder? Basically, it's a lack of vitamin D, uh, which, is, which happens when you don't get enough sunlight. Sunlight is where we get our vitamin D. And uh, believe me, I know this because I spent a year in Greenland where uh, for three months of the year, it's 24 hours of darkness, and I didn't have vitamin D pills, and it made a difference. And uh, that seasonal affective disorder, for those of you that maybe stationed in places up in Alaska, at least you got some sunlight. We got zero. But anyway, it's not a competition. But just the idea, <laughs> just the idea that, that without sunlight, uh, it's very difficult uh, to manage. We, we need sunlight for our own physical health. And so perhaps there's some of that. Um, and I understand that too, because when in Greenland, when, when, when the sun went down and didn't come back up, it got even colder. We needed sunlight to warm us. Uh, when that star dies, so will, so will this planet, because we need the sunlight. And so the psalmist declares that the sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. We are under God's sovereign care, even from the natural world around us. God's sovereign care watches over us. And then he says, that God is sovereign over all evil. He preserves our lives. Look at verses 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. What a great, great couple of verses in terms of assurance that this sovereign God will watch, us, watch over us. This word that's translated keep multiple times in this section, is a, it's, a, it's an active verb. It's not a passive verb. That God is actively keeping these things from us, and, and keeping evil at bay, if you will. Think about the story of Job. When I think about this particular section, uh, Job was a righteous man. Uh, God allowed, remember this, this story back uh, in the Old Testament, uh, God is having this conversation with Satan, and, and, and he says, have you considered my, my servant Job and how righteous he is and how great of a man he is? And Satan essentially says, well, sure, He's that way towards you, God, because you bless him. He's got a great life. He's got a wife. He's got family. He's got servants. He's got expansive lands and everything. Take that stuff away from him and then see if he worships you. And so God says, okay, I will allow you to do some things. Notice the language that God uses in that, in that section of, of, of the book of Job. He says, I will allow you to do those things. But then he says, Job is in your hand this is chapter 2, verse 6. He says this, Job is in your hand, only spare his life. Even in the midst of the trials that Job goes through in, the, in that book, God is sovereignly in control. He doesn't allow anything to happen to Job outside of his will. The power of God refused to allow Satan to attack Job in any way beyond what he called for. <clears throat> 
There's a lot of joy in that to know that, that God will keep us from all evil. He will keep our lives. He will keep us in our going out and our coming in. There should be a great deal of assurance in knowing that God is sovereign over those things. And finally, God, God's providence provides security for the journey. Our God is all-knowing and he has our life in his hands. God doesn't take his eye off the ball. Look at the end of verse 3 and, and going into verse 4. It says that he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. This God is a righteous and holy God. He doesn't take naps. You guys remember the, the movie, The Truman Show? Uh, it's one of my favorite movies. It's an interesting movie, especially theologically. Um, the guy on the, on the right there is uh, the guy who... So let me just, for those of you who haven't seen it, the premise of the movie is this guy named Truman is the guy on the left there. Uh, from his birth, he doesn't know it, but he's been on a TV show. And they've kept him inside of this ginormous TV studio, and they've lived a life. He's lived a life that uh, he thought was real, but it really wasn't. And once he finally figures out that it's not real, he wants to leave this fake world and come into the real world. And the person who produced the whole show, the guy on the right here, interestingly named Christoph, he has this conversation with Truman, and he says, uh, Listen, I, I've been with you since the very beginning. You don't want to go out there. I've watched over you. I, I remember when you were born. I remember you, when you took your first steps. I remember when you, when you went to high school and graduated from high school and graduated from college and so forth. I was with you the whole time. It's a very eerie, very weird view that Hollywood brings us of sovereignty. And uh, spoiler alert, but I'll just go ahead and tell you, uh, Truman listens to the whole speech. And then he says, see you later. I'm going on my own. But isn't that kind of the view of the world around us? Um, it's the skewed view of Hollywood that gives us this misunderstanding of God's sovereignty and how it's, how it's controlling and uh, stifling. And that the best thing we can do for ourselves is relieve ourselves from this uh, from this world and just kind of do our own thing and do it our own way. But the psalmist here understands that the best place we could ever be is in the hands of a sovereign God. I know what you're thinking. You think, well, you know, there's, this is one problem with some of the stuff you've been sharing. We don't live in a perfect world. Last time I checked, I mean, God is sovereign, great, but, but bad things happen. Bad things have happened to me. Bad things have happened to the people I love, my family, my friends. Stuff happens. God is sovereign, but bad stuff still happens. What do I do with that? How do I live in light of that? Eugene Peterson uh, wrote a book, uh, wrote several things, but wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Here's what he says. He says, Christians travel the same ground that everyone else walks on. They breathe the same air. They drink the same water. They shop in the same stores, they read the same newspapers, they fear the same dangers, are subject to the same pressures, get the same distresses, and are buried in the same ground. The difference is that each step we walk, each breath we breathe, we know we are preserved by God. We know we are accompanied by God. 
We know we are ruled by God, and therefore, no matter what doubts we endure or what accidents we experience, the Lord will guard us from every evil. He guards our very life. So in other words, there's nowhere in this text, nor anywhere else, frankly, in Scripture, where you should begin to think, well, gosh, if God is sovereign and if I trust in God, then I will never, ever, ever have any bad things happen to me. It's not... It's not a biblical understanding. It's not a biblical notion. Not here and not anywhere else. So to interpret this psalm to say that you'll never experience pain or torture or death or anything in between is to misunderstand its point. The point is simply this. I mean, we will encounter difficulties. We We will encounter challenges. We will encounter difficult times. Pain. Torture. Death. But what is truly to fear? What is truly to fear when God is in charge? If God is sovereign, and if God's care for us is active and not passive, what is there to fear? When the the God who sustains, who created and sustains the universe is the God who is intimately concerned about you and about me. The God who loves us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for us. To redeem us. Those who would trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord would find an eternal hope that is beyond beyond understanding. Let me finish with a story. Am I going too long? Is is this good? Let me finish with a story. So uh, you may be familiar with this. Uh, if you're not, I'll just, I'll just kind of, little brief story here. Uh, the, the nation of Israel, uh, under, under Saul and David, it was a united kingdom, and then they had some issues, and then they divided into two kingdoms, and the northern kingdom was uh, still called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And the southern kingdom, uh, so, so they, then they had kings in each of these nations, and Jehoshaphat was a, was a king in the southern, southern kingdom, and there were a series of kings in both the north and south. Some of them were good. Some of them were bad. Some of them trusted in, uh, some of them trusted in, in God, and some of them did not. Jehoshaphat was one of those that was a good king. He trusted in God and uh, sought after God and, and God's uh, so- sovereign and providential care over his people. And uh, anytime he did anything, he, he had a habit of consulting God. And in, in 2 Chronicles 20, uh, Judah was being attacked by a coalition of enemies around them. And the military force was much larger and much more advanced than the, than the army that Judah had at the time. And so they were, in, they were in a rough spot. They were in a rough spot. The way things looked, Judah was, Judah was not going to come out of this at all. The text says that Jehoshaphat then, it says that he set his face to seek the Lord. He set his face to seek the Lord. And he declared a time of fasting and prayer among his people. He wanted to encourage them on their own, individually, to fast and pray and seek the Lord's guidance on what they should do next and how, how God might choose to deliver them. And, uh, which is interesting because his first response wasn't to, to try, try to develop military coalitions to counter this, uh, this enemy force that was coming against him. He didn't try to negotiate with his enemy. He didn't try to say, okay, what do you want? 
What can I give you so that you won't attack us? Didn't do that either. He simply prayed and fasted and asked his people to do the same. And finally, Jehoshaphat brought the assembly of people together in Jerusalem. And uh, together, uh, as a a corporate entity, they prayed and fasted together. And they pleaded to the Lord and appealed for his help. My favorite part of, and he, he prayed this beautiful public prayer. I won't share it all with you. It's a beautiful prayer, just asking God to deliver his people. At the end of that prayer, there's this beautiful sentence that I think is super awesome. He says, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I don't know about you, but I've been in moments like that. My uh, red-blooded American mentality is, first of all, I want to try to fix things myself. Is that you? Resonate with that? I want to try to figure it out on my own. I want to to, uh, fix this problem. When I read the story of Jehoshaphat, I think, why didn't you just, why didn't you start negotiating? Why didn't you try to muster up an army with uh, friends around you? Why didn't you try to develop some, some deceptive military strategies that would give you an advantage? Pray? And that's the direction he went. And he prays a very honest prayer. Lord, I don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. You see, this is the difference between someone who was a Christ follower and someone who is not. The Christ follower understands that God is sovereign, God is in control, that God desires uh, to, to watch over us and has an eternal perspective and an eternal outlook. And with faith, that Christ follower says, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And so my encouragement to you, if you are a Christ follower, if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord, when you find yourself in challenging and difficult situations, God doesn't expect you to have all the answers. But God does invite you and call upon you to trust in Him as the sovereign God that He is. To trust in God's sovereign care that watches over you, that Psalm 121 gives us confidence, watches over us in so many different facets of our lives. Be a man and woman of prayer to invite God to walk with you through those challenges and difficulties that will inevitably come. It's a sign of humility and it's actually a sign of strength to be able to say, just like Jehoshaphat, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Seek to grow in a deeper relationship with him as he leads you through and know that he loves you, that he cares about your circumstance and that he longs to extend to you his grace and his mercy. And if you're not a Christ follower, I got great news for you. We have this great and awesome and mighty God that we've been reading about in this psalm who longs to gather you in who longs to watch over you, who longs to extend to you the grace and mercy that can only be found in Christ. 
And he invites you into a relationship with himself. Because he doesn't expect you to do it on your own. In fact, you can't. And he invites you into this relationship with him so that you can lean upon him, this great and mighty and sovereign God who loves you more than you can ever know. So I invite you to trust in that great God through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you. Let's pray together.